Welcome to What Magnificence with Chase Thornock, where we help high-achieving executives and entrepreneurs find answers to their most vexing health problems through the power of what if. Now, here's your host, Chase. Hey guys, what's good and what if? Welcome to What Magnificence. I am your humble host, Chase Thornock. I am so glad you're here um, every week that you guys show up and show out is amazing. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, this week, we want to talk, I want to talk, me, myself, I want to talk about diet. Um, it's been interesting because as I've been working with, uh, with various clients, a question that often comes up early is, what should my diet be um, for my health? You know, what's kind of my ideal way I should be eating? And this hits home for me because of my dealing with Crohn's disease, right? Crohn's disease is that auto-inflammatory intestinal condition. It's, it's under the category of IBD, irritable bowel disease. And uh, <laughs> that's a question you're obviously asking yourself, right? When you're sick in your intestines is how is my food impacting my health? Um, the funny thing was is that I was told early on that diet really didn't have anything to do with it. And while I'm not exactly sure that's what was trying to be communicated, I think what was trying to be communicated, and I hope what was trying to be communicated was uh, this disease is complicated, right? It's complex, it's multifaceted. And so diet alone cannot cure your Crohn's disease. And, uh, and certainly that's something that I experienced as I tried to switch different things, I'd eliminate things, and maybe this is familiar to you, um, cutting out you know, some of the big culprits, right, that we think about where gluten and milk and nuts and, you know, all sorts of things trying to get this thing to calm down. Uh, interestingly enough, it's, uh, it's anticipated or I guess estimated that about 17 to 20% of all people in industrialized nations have something called IBS, and that's not irritable bowel disease, as in the case of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but it's irritable bowel syndrome. And essentially what that means is that when they're scoped or otherwise or biopsied, there's no um, real pathological reason or physiological reason for them to be having these symptoms. But they are experiencing alternating constipation and diarrhea, urgency to go, um, and we're not sure why. Um, and in some studies that they've done, they've seen that they would insert a balloon into their intestine, their large intestine, and inflate the balloon to certain pressures. And they found that people who weren't experiencing IBS could withstand normal amounts of pressure without experiencing any pain. Um, whereas those who were dealing with IBS, when they were getting to those normal amounts of pressure, they were experiencing pain and urgency. The other fascinating thing was that it was lighting up the parts of their brains that were also associated with emotion. So there was more going on here that was, that was you know, obviously just more than diet. But our diet does play a role. Our diet does play a role in health. And I think that's something that universally, hopefully everyone can agree on, that, that what you eat does impact your health. But I kind of want to look at it a little bit of a different way today. And... Uh, I want to think about it in terms of instead of looking at the nutrients we need to feed and fuel our bodies, although those are clearly very important things, 
Maybe we should be thinking about a diet that feeds and fuels our bacteria instead of our bodies. Now, that's interesting in a few different ways, because as I've done research, the things that fuel the bacteria, at least at least the types of bacteria that you want in your intestines, the things that fuel your bacteria also coincidentally happen to be some of the best things for your physical health too. And when you think about it that way, it's not that surprising um, because these systems have developed with each other in, symbios in symbiosis between the human organism and the bacteria. And, you know, the bacteria has to be able to eat what the human's eating. Um, and in order for the bacteria to survive, the human being survives, right? It's the definition of symbiosis. The food is good for both. But what we've gotten away from um, is, well, <laughs> due to our technolo technological prowess as well, um, we've been able to take food and manipulate it in really cool ways, ways that make it last longer, that make it cheaper, lots of really great benefits, but we're also finding that maybe it's not as conducive to our bacteria as it used to be. So as we start down this journey of talking about food, I want to kind of pause and have you check in with your body. Just take a second here, plug into your body, because a lot of us have a lot of stuff around food. And if you're noticing yourself with some changes, you're, you're maybe shallow breathing, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're shallow breathing a lot, um, but maybe you're shallow breathing more, or maybe you feel temperature changes in your body, pay attention to those clues, right? Because our bodies will communicate to us um, when things are something that maybe we should pay attention to, or maybe there's something that we are having a neurological response via our past conditioning that's impacting us. So here's some science around food, and we've talked about some of these stats before, but I think it's useful to reiterate them. So you have more, more bacterial cells in your body than you have human cells. Um, over half, I guess that would be the definition of more, but it's about 56% of all cells in your body are bacterial. And these bacteria produce something called metabolites. And metabolites is a really nice way of saying byproducts. Um, it can come in other forms, but a lot of these byproducts are as waste products from the bacteria as they ingest food and create energy, these metabolites are byproducts. And it just so happens that these metabolites are crucial for human health. They are things that your body cannot create. You don't get them in your food supply. The only way we get them is through the bacteria. Um, serotonin is produced in your gut. 90% of your serotonin is produced in your gut. And these, these metabolites are responsible for energy metabolism, cell-to-cell -cell communication, and host immunity, including your inflammatory responses. So they're really pretty, pretty critical, and it's so fascinating to consider that usually diseases of autoimmunity include dysfunctions of these processes. Energy metabolism with chronic fatigue, right? And many other, many other autoimmune diseases create a lot of fatigue. Cell-to-cell -cell communication, right? As evidenced in, as we're seeing, some of these some of these gut diseases seem to be a dysfunction of cell-to-cell -cell communication. And then more directly, things like multiple sclerosis, where you have a demyelination of the fat around the nerve cells that inhibits their abilities 
ability to communicate to one another. Um, and then obviously immunity and inflammation, autoimmunity. 80% of your immune system are those bacteria. They produce, in addition to metabolites, other chemicals that help to keep you healthy. Uh, when you have an infection or a foreign invader, they compete, right? We talked about C. diff and stool transplants. The way that the bacteria get the C. diff under control via a stool transplant is they produce chemicals to destroy it. Lactobacillus, for example, produces lactic acid. Lactic acid is caustic to other forms of bacteria, and, and that's how, one way that it competes. The other thing, obviously, is the enteric nervous system. All those bundles of neurons, five times as many neurons in your gut as you have in your spine, those neurons are constantly communi communicating with what? The bacteria. And so the, competition, the, comp the composition of those bacteria uh, plays a big role in the messages that the enteric nervous system is sending to your brain. Remember, 70% of those neurons are sending information to the brain. It's providing communication. I was talking uh, with my father-in-law about this topic, and it was so fascinating because he's an electrical engineer. And he, <laughs> all you electrical engineers out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but he says, in order for you to have a system that works, you need to have command and you need to have response, right? So you need to have communication to the system, and then you need to have a response back to the system. And he said the only purpose for the response is self-regulation. It's the same thing with a human being. So in a computer system, for example, or um, where they're putting it under stress <laughs> with, with heat or with wind or sun or whatever, anything that wants to... Um, that threatens the balance of the system, of the computer system, it is sending feedback via the response to command, and then command can then send information back to the computer so it can main maintain its homeostasis. We understand this concept when it comes to electronics, right? What about our bodies? Our bodies are so similar and yet so much more complex. But command requires connection. You have to have connection, both up and down, receiving and transmitting, in order for you to have command over a system. That's how this discussion came up, actually. We were talking about this concept of command, and he brought it up. He's like, oh, this is my wheelhouse. I get this. I don't necessarily understand the, some of this other stuff that you're talking about with health, but I understand this. Well, you can bet after our conversation, when we tied this all together, it made a lot of sense to both of us, right? So... Connection is a requirement for control. And sometimes the kind of control that we try to achieve over our bodies by forcing it to do things is not control, it's coercion, right? And then, as in the case with the computer system, I asked him, what happens if you stop receiving status or response, or response right, status from the computer? And he said, well, usually it goes into a feedback cycle where... It over-regulates or under-regulates. Does that sound like an autoimmune disease to you? It does to me, right? Our bodies are not receiving the signals, and so they under-regulate or they over-regulate themselves. So the bacteria play a really important role in that communication, in that status or response that you are getting from your body. It's so cool and so, so important to understand. 
We've talked about the concept of leaky gut, but this is important to understand as well that those bacteria we were finding have a hand in how permeable that gut lining is. And the more permeable the gut lining, the more likely stuff, stressors, okay? Stress could be physical, it could be chemical, it could be mental, it could be emotional. Anything that threatens our homeostasis, um, stressors are able to get into our system more so the more permeable that that gut lining ends up being. So let's change our paradigm a little bit and consider what it takes to feed our bacteria, right? Asking yourself that question, what does it take to feed our bacteria? And I like to borrow a line um, from Michael Pollan. He's the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and Cooked, several other books, where he talks about some of the, um, some of the nuances in our food, right, in our food systems. And the mantra basically says, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but in my heart, this mantra says, he says, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And when you think about it, it's a bit deeper than it comes off at surface level. But when he says eat food, he says, I want you to focus on eating food that your great, great, great grandmother would recognize as food. So if you gave your great, great, great grandmother a Pop-Tart, she'd probably look at that and not know what it is, right? Can I eat this? What is this thing, right? So what would they recognize as food as opposed to, he calls them edible food-like substances, right? I think all of us can probably agree that the, you know, the cheese that you get in a can falls maybe under that category of edible food-like substances. We're not really sure what it is. It tastes, does it taste great? I, I, to some people, I think it tastes great. Um, it tastes, there's a lot of taste, right? But et, that's edible food-like substances. And the fascinating thing about that is that those edible food-like substances are not very nutritious to the bacteria in our guts. They may include a lot of the micro and macronutrients that a body needs, but they don't include the food that your bacteria need to survive and to thrive, okay? So <laughs> that means that the things that do feed the bacteria are found in whole foods. And the things that feed the bacteria are fiber, basically. And fiber is really long chains of sugars that your body cannot digest. Now there is soluble fiber, which you can break down, but we're talking more insoluble fiber that as you ingest it, you don't break it down, but the bacteria start to break it down. And when they start to eat, they start to create waste. And what's that waste? That waste is metabolites. That waste is short chain fatty acids and other really important hormones and chemicals for your body. Not really important. Without them, you don't survive. And if they become diminished, you certainly are not th thriving, okay? So what about what about growing the bacteria? I like to think of the bacteria in your guts as your little garden, because that's kind of what it is. It's the flora and fauna of you. Um, and in this little garden, we are going to grow it. We're going to add more bacteria to it. So back before we had our modern day preservation techniques, and Michael Pollan, I think, does a great job discussing these, these topics too. I'd really recommend his stuff. Um, but before we had our our more modern day preservation techniques, which include 
um, heat and chemicals mainly, um, we had fermentation, right? We found early on that if we took a food and we left it out basically for a long time, that it would sour, that it would curdle, but then we could eat it and it would actually stay good for a long time. Now, the mechanism is quite a bit different than what we do now. We focus on killing everything that's in there, right? In fermented foods, what you're doing, much like that stool transplant, is you're just out competing everything else. So we talked about lactobacillus. Lactobacillus exists in milk. And when you create yogurt, lactobacillus is what gives yogurt a tart flavor. Uh, because of the lactic acid that it produces. And it produces that lactic acid as a metabolite, as a byproduct, and as a way to compete and kill the other forms of bacteria that may be interested in that food source. So you're just so densely packing it with other types of bacteria that the more pathogenic or opportunistic bacteria can't take hold. So we want to grow it. Things like sauerkraut, Everything you hated as a kid is on this list, probably. But uh, sauerkraut, really high-quality pickles. Like, don't buy the pickles where they add yellow number five to the can. I don't... (laughs) To make it the color that I guess we're used to seeing, right? But, like, really high-quality fermented pickles. Um, Yogurt. And, again, this is as least processed as possible and not with a bunch of added sugar to it, right? But just straight up yogurt is a great fermented product. Um, Raw milk is an interesting idea. And there's been a lot of discussion about raw milk, and I think it's getting more steam lately, but raw milk has been a really important healing part for me in my process and in my journey. And at first I was really resistant to it. Um, It scared me, frankly. My wife was like, hey, should we try raw milk? I'm like, no, I don't want to (laughs) die. And then I was even more scared because my gut was already compromised. So I was scared, you know, just all this fear, like what happens if I drink this? And if I, you know, am I going to get really, really sick? And I went and did my research uh, to learn more about raw milk. And it turns out that over the past hundred years, nobody's died from raw milk. There's been, I think it was just under a thousand people who'd gotten sick in some form or another, and that was attributed to raw milk. Um, but, and I'm, I'm actually going to look this one up on the fly because I, I think this is important, but we are going to look up together how many people have died from lettuce. The decade lettuce tried to kill us. What an article. Uh, so obviously I haven't I haven't done a ton of research on this. I'm doing this with you right now, but this is a BuzzFeed article. Um, And certainly we've all seen this, right? That there were dozens of outbreaks of E. coli linked to leafy greens in the United States between 2009 and 2015. Um, One person sadly died in California in 2017 um, from that E. coli. Just months later, in spring of 2018, the situation got even worse. Another five people, two in Minnesota, and the rest from Arkansas, California, and New York passed away. And that's really sad. So in total, 210 were sickened in 36 states uh, in the outbreak. 96 were hospitalized. It was the largest since 2016. So this brings up, again, kind of an interesting point. And with all of this stuff, please talk to your physician. Um... 
this is this is important to take care of your health here um, if you're going to consider drinking raw milk. But the fascinating thing I found was that when we cook the milk, by design, we kill the bacteria that naturally exists in the milk. And that bacteria forms a protective way for the milk to uh, stay good for our bodies to drink. Um, obviously, if it becomes contaminated with cow manure, uh, then it gets other bacteria in there that can be dangerous. And that's why we started pasteurizing it to begin with. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that by doing pasteurization, technically we can be less careful with the way that we handle the milk. Because all of a sudden it doesn't really matter if there's a little bit of poop in the milk, right? It doesn't really matter if the cow's not entirely healthy. Um, and so if you are going to, if you are going to do this, make sure you know the source. Um, but I thought that was so fascinating once I did my research that, that, that our lettuce in some ways has become uh, a little bit more scary than the raw milk. So, uh, now that I'm done with that tangent, let's get back to the discussion here. Um, so that's the way that we grow and populate our intestine with healthy bacteria, right? Is that we increase our intake of those bacteria through the fermented foods. Another thing to consider is that we want to feed those bacteria once we're in there. And we've talked about that. But I want to point out a substance called inulin. So inulin is a particular type of fiber that most good bacteria really enjoy eating. Um, and it's in a lot of fruits and vegetables. It's already there. And my recommendation, just like when I say, you know, we're using the machinery of the body, use and capture all of the inherent magic that's there that we don't understand yet in the science. Same with food. If you're thinking, I need vitamin C, right? There's two options. There's a lot of options, but you could say, I want vitamin C. And so I'm going to take a supplement for my vitamin C. Is that bad? No. But why not eat the food with the high content of vitamin C and capture all the other magic that's going on with the vitamin C? Remember the entourage effect we talked about with marijuana? It happens in your food too. Remember those 400 active compounds we talked about in marijuana? The reason you have receptors for those things is because they're in your food. <laughs> right? Your food changes your body. It changes your chemistry. It provides information that then sends status. Remember when we talked about elect uh, yeah, electrical engineering, status to the command center in your brain, and that communicates back down. You can't have control with the system without status, without a report from the body. Another thing to consider is that um, uh, sprouting our grains this one's really interesting too, because it's a concept I wasn't really familiar with. Um, but the idea goes that in the grains that we eat, there are chemicals that the, the plant naturally produces to protect itself from pests and other things. And one of those compounds is called phytic acid. Now there's some argument in the literature, is phytic acid good, is phytic acid bad? I don't wanna get into that so much. I do wanna point out what phytic acid does though. When we ingest grains that aren't sprouted, we get phytic acid in our systems. Phytic acid is an incredibly strong binder. And so it binds to upwards of 80% of the magnesium and the iron in your diet and carries it through your system. So you are unable to absorb those nutrients. 
when you sprout your grains, among other things, it destroys the phytic acid and it makes the nutrients in the grain more available to your body. And so you're taking, it's crazy, but you're taking the same thing and by soaking it in water and letting it start to sprout a little bit, it gets rid of, it makes it more nutritious. It's amazing to me, right? But that's the same thing we learned with bread. If you took wheat and you ground it up with flour and you made bread with it, you couldn't survive on it. Eventually you'd run into nutritional deficiencies. But if you took wheat and you sprouted it and then fermented it, then it has everything that you need from what I understand, basically to live on. It's magic. It's really, really cool. So consider sprouting any grains that you eat. So we've talked about adding to the bacteria. We've talked about feeding the bacteria. Now this part's interesting. Once we've got the bacteria there, we don't kill it. <laughs> this might sound this might sound silly, right? Well, of course you don't want to kill it. If you spend all this time growing it, you don't want to go out and dump Roundup on your garden. Um, don't kill it. But the nuances in the ways that we're killing the bacteria can be surprising. The first thing is to consider the products that we're using in our house. So did you know that most toothpaste that you use um, contains an antibiotic called triclosan? Triclosan is really interesting, and it's been in the news a little bit more lately. But we're finding that triclosan, in the news, it's been uh, related to antibiotic resistance, that it's contributing to antibiotic resistance among bacteria. But triclosan will kill good bacteria and it will kill bad bacteria. So when you think about it, it it seemed reasonable to put that in the toothpaste. If you can kill the bacteria in your mouth, then you're not going to deal with as many cavities. The downside is, and we've learned this from our other antibiotic use, is that, well, you actually kill the good guys as well, and you make the bad guys stronger at the same time. So triclosan's in your toothpaste, and it was recently banned in hand soaps. So antibiotic hand soaps can't use triclosan, but as far as I know, your toothpaste still can. That's a bit mind-boggling. I'm not sure the distinction that's used there, and maybe there's a really good reason for that. But it's something to consider, changing your toothpaste. Then when it comes to cleaning our homes, we clean our homes with chemicals. We use more antibiotics, right? Then in addition to that, we use things like antibiotics in our meat supply. We use antibiotics everywhere. There's antibiotics everywhere. And each of those interactions impacts and destroys your gut microflora. There's a concept called hygiene theory, which tries to describe this rise in autoimmune conditions. And it basically says that we're too clean, that we have killed so much of our microbiome that our immune systems are misfiring because 80% of our immune system is our gut, is inside of our gut. And the 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 cure for this is to not be quite so clean and or if you are going to clean and sanitize use a mechanical means right you can use steam in your home to kill bacteria but as soon as it's as soon as the temperature's calmed you know it, as soon as it comes out it cools off once it's cooled off it's no longer dangerous to the bacteria that's in your guts and it's going to be a heck of a lot more dangerous to your mouth on the way to your guts if it's that hot right? Don't do that. But consider using a mechanical means to clean rather than that. There's also a really interesting 
product that I've seen too. Um, and there's a few different types, but it's called um, Nature's Force, I think is the one that we use. And the chemical that you end up cleaning with, you take water and you put it in a little, this little vat. Um, and then you put a solution of salt and vinegar. And with uh, with Nature's Force, it it gets the ratios correct. But essentially, when you add electricity to the water and the salt and the vinegar, you get a solution. And I want to make sure I say this right. I believe it's hypochlorous acid. Um, and this chemical happens to be happens to be the chemical that your white blood cells make to destroy um, bacteria and viruses. Um, so we already know that it's decently safe for humans because your body already produces it. So things to consider there on the don't kill the bacteria front. There's a lot of things that we can do. Change the way that you eat meat. Find meats that don't have antibiotics in it because those antibiotics do end up in your system and do impact your microbiome. Let me read you this little piece here. Um, this is a this is a research article um, on ncbi.gov. It says humans and the gut bacteria have evolved multiple ways to communicate with and regulate one another. Remember command and response. Command and response, communicate and regulate one another. Psychological stress and depression can promote consumption of highly palatable foods, influencing which, sorry, influencing which gut bacteria thrive. Additionally, stress and depression can reshape the gut bacteria's composition through stress hormones, inflammation, and autonomic alterations. In turn, the gut bacteria release metabolites, toxins, and neurohormones that can alter eating behavior and mood. Some bacterial species may encourage dysregulated eating. That's amazing to me, right? We think so much that the brain controls things, but what this is suggesting is that the composition of the bacteria in our guts can actually influence our eating behaviors even so much that they become dysregulated, right? In forms of of, uh, eating disorders. Our gut bacteria can contribute to the formation of those types of disorders. Now, there's one last piece here uh, that I want to share with you to blow your mind. But before I get to that, um, I want to encourage you. I want to know your what ifs. What are you dealing with in your life? Are you like like my clients, these questions that you have? What are the what-ifs that you're trying? Are you trying cold showers? Are you trying the breathing? What are you noticing? What are you feeling in your body? I would love to know. Please email me at chase at whatmagnificence.com, and I would love to have you on the show. Um, but this week's What If Warriors is a, is a bit of a, a testimonial um, that I got. And it's a uh, review by nothing great, nothing small. But they say, type A, if you're a type A personality or just stressed, experiencing pain or health issues, take a listen. 
Chase makes great effort to present quality information that can get results. Thank you so much. Nothing great, nothing small. I appreciate that so much. So the last bit of information, the last what if for today is, what if the way you felt about your food was almost as important as what you are eating? At the beginning of the show, I asked you to pay attention, and hopefully you did, to your body, to what you were feeling in your body. Because when we talk about food, a lot of times people have reactions. We start more shallow breathing, our bodies get cold, we get tense, we get tight. We can have a lot of different experiences, but that is sending information. It's sending information, that command and response feedback. It is sending information. And so if you're eating your food and you're stressed as you do it, you're cramming food down, right? And you're just going, then your body is going to get information from you that says there's danger, I'm stressed. And then it gets this food, right? And a couple of things happen. The first is that you don't have great blood flow to your digestion to deal with that first. Um, because in fight or flight, your blood flow leaves your internal organs and goes to your extremities. So you're not going to digest it very well. The second thing is that you're going to produce more um, stress hormones, including cortisol. And cortisol is fascinating. Again, it communicates with every system in your body. And one of the one of the functions, one of the byproducts of cortisol is that it increases fat deposits and it decreases muscle. It's what's called an corticosteroid as opposed to an anabolic steroid. When we think of you know people with huge muscles, um, that's an anabolic steroid. Corticosteroids produce the opposite effect. So when you take prednisone, methylprednisolone, methylprednisolone any sort of corticosteroid for your autoimmune condition, it produces the opposite effects where it destroys muscle tissue, it builds fat, and uh, it decreases bone density. And the cortisol in your system that your body naturally produces does the same thing. It's what happened to me. If you're curious about my story, go to whatmagnificence.com and you can see, you can see in pictures um, where I went from looking fine and healthy to being malnourished from my Crohn's disease to having all those fat deposits in my face from the prednisone, from the steroids. But the cortisol that your body make, makes has the same effect on your body, right? So what if the way you feel about your food, what if the way you're feeling about your environment at the time contributes to that? What if feeling more grateful, what if feeling more content and more peaceful about what you're eating could actually make a difference to your bacteria in your gut and to your overall health. And that is my what if of the week. And I hope this week that you'll feel your body a little bit more, pay attention to it a little bit more because it's trying to tell you stuff 